The Time Out for Mental Health podcast is where we speak to sports figures about their experience with mental health issues related to depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug. As detailed in my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Men in particular need support to ask for help when they feel off and don't know what is really going on with them. If they don't seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On the podcast, we want to uncover these issues so men can live a happy and healthy life, even if they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, Tony Moskal, one of the most foremost people in the educational leadership field when it comes to today's youth. We're honored that Tony is sharing some of his time with us. Tony, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great, man. It's Friday. It's the weekend. Everything <laughs> is good. <laughs> That's for sure. Tony, you do your own podcast about high school sports. Could you tell us a little about that? Well, I was bouncing around LinkedIn one day, and I saw this thing, um, high school sports podcast, through this Believe podcast network, and I said, I know a lot of people in sports. Let me, let me send them an email. Let me reach out. So I did. Um, they were intrigued, and they took them a little while to get back to me, and I've been doing it for almost a year. I, I, sometimes I take a week or two off because I get tired. I get you know, I'm busy, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy talking to players and coaches and throughout different sports and different arenas. And it, it, for me, it's just a lot of fun. Sure. What's the name of it again? It's called Believe in High School Sports, B-L-E-A-V. Uh -huh. um, if you go to the podcast app on your phone then, and you just type in high school sports, Tony Moskal, it's it jumps right up at you. Cool. Cool. That sounds great. Um, so let me frame our discussion about high school sports, uh, and then we can drill down into specifics. Um, now, Tony, you've spent 16 years in the juvenile justice system in L.A. County working in the Office of Education. And for the past 14 years, you've been a high school teacher focusing on health, P.E., career development, as well as sports broadcast journalism. And you're a sports <laughs> analyst for high school sports. I mean, you do it all. I, Not yeah. to mention, you're, you're a golf coach yeah. <laughs> for youth, too. So, Tony, and you've recently earned a master's degree in educational leadership. Did you ever think you'd be such an influencer of young people? I... No, I got into teaching kind of by mistake. I was coaching football back in the 80s, and I, I wanted to be the next Joe Paterno. Um, I wanted to coach football for the rest of my life. And then the time came where I needed to get a full-time job, and I was substitute teaching, and a job came up, and I, I drove out to El Monte, California, I met the principal of a place called McLaren Children's Center, which was a place for kids that had been removed from their home by the courts for a variety of reasons. Um, 
And then I said, hey, I'm in the middle of coaching football right now, and I, I can't really commit. He said, well, call me when your season's over. So I called the guy when the season was over. He says, well, when do you want to start? <laughs> so I started that following Monday after we played a game on Friday. I started teaching there, and then I spent, you know, bounced around to juvenile halls, probation camps, and 16 years later, believe it or not, I got, I got kind of tired of it. And then I transferred up into the, the area that I'm in now. <clears throat> All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to get to that a little deeper in a minute. But, you know, not many people have reached the heights that you have in your profession. So what, what's, what's inside of you? What drives you to such a high level of excellence as far as educational leadership is concerned? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if it's, it's excellence. I just I try to go out every day and, and have fun with kids. I tell people <clears throat> I love being a teacher, but I don't like it because I, I don't like all the, the, the BS that goes along. I love my time with my students. I love my time out on the golf course with, with my team, other teams, other coaches. But the, the, the ancillary stuff, the, the, the meetings where just put it in an email because it's so easy to do that. And, and people need to talk and hear themselves speak and Man, I, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been to probably 2,000 meetings. I, I don't need to go to any more to, you know, learn how to take attendance in a classroom or how to set up where your kids sit or the, the latest educational fad that somebody in Sacramento just came up with. I want to be around the kids. All right. So what, what do you think your central message is that you try to get across to youth today? Find a passion. Find something you love to do, and if you do, it's not work. It's fun. Um, and I think that the education system kind of hinders kids doing that because it's, you're going to take this class, you're going to take this, you're going to take this. And in my career development class, I find that kids have so many other interests that we really don't focus on where we're saying you're, you're, you're going to read the classics in your English class. Well, none of us liked them. You know, nobody really enjoyed reading all that stuff. Why can't we just let kids read what they want to read? Because at least they're reading. But find something you love to do and then allow the school to help you find where you could take advantage of that passion and make a living out of it. Cool. So then your gratification comes from being with the kids, having fun. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then hearing from them years later. Um, you know, working in the county, you, you, I, I never really heard from kids unless they got rearrested and came back to us. But now I'm in touch with kids that graduated 10 years ago that are, that are doing phenomenal things. Uh, we text. We, we chat on Twitter via social media. Um, sometimes they come over to my house uh, and it's, for me, that's the fun part. I see what they're doing in college. You know, they're graduating, they're moving on in their life. And for me, that's, it's, it's great to keep in touch with those kids, which is what I didn't have in, in the juvenile justice system. All right. In that juvenile justice system, can you give us like a blow by blow description of what that experience was like? You show up, and what happens? Well, they, it was different at each place. When I was at, at the probation camp or the juvenile hall, they, they bring the kids to your class. 
The kids are all assigned to class. And the frustrating thing was that you could have kids in a classroom that were from seventh grade age all the way up to 12th grade age. And you could have kids academically that could not read and write. And then you had kids that had tested out above the 12th grade level. So how do I design an educational program for, you know, 18 kids at 18 different levels in 18 different areas that, you know, was, was pretty difficult to do. And maybe some kids didn't need the subject I was teaching. I would do credit checks for kids. I'd backtrack and call their high schools and, and get their transcripts set and say, Hey, Johnny, you've got, you know, 10 credits of this when you only need five. So I would then talk to the school counselor and say, while he or she is in my class, can we give them this other subject? And, but it was difficult to teach like I do now where you teach one thing and then they come back tomorrow and you teach, you kind of, you know, build on what, what you're teaching. You know, when I was at McLaren back in the late 80s, I could have 10 kids in my classroom on Monday. Those 10 kids could be gone on Tuesday with 10 new kids on Wednesday. So it was, it, it was kind of fly by the seat of your pants. So tell me about those kids. What, why were they there? What, what's the story? Well, the kids at McLaren were there because something happened in their home, whether it was abuse, abandonment, neglect, something that they went to, to child and family court and the judge decided you are no longer allowed to live in that home. So they took custody of the kid, put him in through the, the Department of Child and Family Services. So we were kind of like a holding not a holding tank, but a, a place where kids, then they would get interviewed for placements, for group homes, for foster places and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a, a, a temporary place until they can hopefully find something permanent for those kids. The, the probation camp juvenile hall, a little bit different. Kid commits a crime. They go to the juvenile hall. They're there for a, 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 an amount of time. The judge sentences them. And then some kids would go to camp and they would go to camp for sometimes up to a year. So a kid would be there for, for a year. And, and that's where back when it was set up, the, uh, uh, in my opinion, a really good way, you could really get some work done with a kid because they're away from their negative element. And they're somewhere for a long period of time where you can really get in and do work with them. Did you ever have uh kids that were really challenging and difficult all the time time. because they didn't want to learn um especially the boys the younger boys that were so entrenched in in the gang culture where they saw people selling drugs making a lot of money and they said well why do i need i make more in a week than you do in you know in two months and i really couldn't argue with them but what I would do is I would turn it around and say, okay, what have you done with that money? Did you invest it? Did you put it in a bank account? Did you, did you put it towards something? And a lot of kids would say, well, I have to help my mom with groceries. I have to help with this. I have to help with that. And a lot of kids just spent it. Did, did, during that time, I mean, this sounds really challenging. So did you personally ever get down on yourself? Like this is just too high a mountain to climb? I, I did. Um, because there was really no light at the end of the tunnel because you work with a kid, the kid, you know, seems to be making some strides, making some progress. Then, you know, they get sent home and then a month later they're back. And the problem I always had was 
you know, we're teaching these kids education when they didn't get locked up because they're bad at math. They got locked up because they're bad at making decisions and they don't know how to get along with people. And Johnny never got locked up because he couldn't do the Pythagorean theorem. Johnny got locked up because, you know, he was beating the crap out of somebody or he's involved in gang activity, not because he can't do A squared, B squared equals C squared. So they were going through some challenging emotions. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and being a young teacher, I really didn't understand it, that there was probably a lot of, you know, the, the anxiety, the I, I don't know if I would call it depression, but um, the fact that these kids didn't know, a lot of them, you know, come from fatherless homes. Um, There's a lot of stress in their life. There's a lot of things that, you know, they really didn't have a lot of control over. And I didn't really know how to deal with it because I was, I was young. Um, and, and I thought, you know, being the disciplinarian, you know, sit down, shut up and do your work was the way to go. And lo and behold, it, it really wasn't. And I, I, we did a program. I went to my principal, who's the best principal I've ever had, um, took a group of us out to Camp David Gonzalez one day, and we did this program. It was through Project Adventure, and it was experiential education where kids go out and they learn by doing, and you put them in a group. And you, you start at the very beginning and you learn their names. And, you know, I'm not the teacher. I'm Tony. I'm not Mr. Moscow. And it, it helped me see everything in a different light. And from that point on, Tim, I tell you, I had so many fewer problems with kids, with discipline, with asking them to do things. They would come into my classroom they, I would let them call me by my first name, which really upset a lot of people, but <laughs> I, I, did, I didn't care. They said, well, you know, they have to call you sir. And, and it was a, a boot camp where the kids wore fatigues and combat boots, and then they have to salute you. And I said, well, no, they don't, because technically I'm not a military officer, and if I want them to call me by my first name and it works for me, who are you to tell me? you know, what works in my classroom because I'm getting results with the kids. And for me, that's all that really mattered. That, that's a great position you took. Uh, I really like that. Did you, did you know if kids were uh, addicted to drugs when they were in your class? Well, another story, I went to a meeting and it was about, uh, this woman was a pharmacist and she was a consultant for the county and she wrote a book about drugs that taught us how to teach kids about drugs and alcohol in a much different way because kids would say, Oh, well, you know, my grandmother's been smoking for 70 years and she doesn't have cancer or, you know, my friend smokes weed and he gets all A's and I didn't know how to deal with that. So she helped us deal with that. And then after teaching that I had so many kids come up to me and say, Hey, Tony, I've, I've learned so much. I, I want to quit. I want to stop. What do I do? And this was at the beginning of the internet. I found a program at Mission College to become a certified drug and alcohol counselor. Oh, wow. So I enrolled, I took it, I, I got the certification, and I learned a lot about how to deal with kids and counsel. And, and sometimes, sometimes class would just be, throw the books. We're not even going to use the books today. Let's just talk. 
Yeah. And that, that upset a lot of people because you're supposed to have a lesson plan. No, I'm supposed to have a people plan. And, and the kids got more out of that than, you know, doing long division. So you were really the source for them if they were into drugs or risky behavior. They saw you as, as a, a, a source for, that could really support them and help yeah, them. Kind, yeah, kind of a resource, but somebody that, that learned a lot about it and was able to kind of help them and guide them. Now, the one thing I didn't have control over is when they left us, well, where do they go back? they go back to the same environment that got them in trouble in the first place because we didn't do anything to support them and neither did the court system. So it's kind of like, you know, the wolf bites the sheep. You bring the sheep in, you know, you fix the sheep up and then you throw it back out to a pack of wolves. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Did, did you think uh, any of them were uh, like suicidal, really down on, on their life and, well, yeah, when, when I first started at the, <clears throat> at the juvenile hall, I would get my roll book, and the, the kids were all coded. So if there was a kid that was 187, well, number one, he was wearing orange or she, and that meant they were in for murder. Um, SI meant uh, self-injurious. Uh, K meant that there was another person in there. You had to keep them away from each other. So, you know, kids would, would you know, but we didn't know a lot about mental health back then. You know, you thought these kids are suicidal and you'd see, you know, scars on their wrists and stuff. And, you know, you'd try to talk to them about it. And then especially with girls, there was a lot of, you know, the, the physical abuse, the, um, the you know, the, the, the uncle doing the bad things or the wrong things and the, you know, the, the, the rape and the, all of that. And, and kids just feel devalued. And we were not really set up to really effectively counsel these kids. Even if we did, they go right back to the environment that got them in trouble in the first place or got them, you know, in that situation to have those feelings in the first place. Right. Well, that experience sounds really interesting and, uh, and it sounds heavy at the same time. Um, I enjoyed it, Tim. I really did because once, you know, a kid finds out or learns that you, you, you actually have some care for them. Then it's kind of like, you know, open the floodgates. They want to talk to you about everything. Um, and for me, that was, that was fun because, but I had to open up myself a little bit as well. Um, I remember being at the camp, um, my wife, who you know, we had just started having children and I had pictures of my kids up and, you know, and it was all in all girls camp and they were very interested. Oh, your kids are so cute. Your kids are so cute. And and, oh, I have a kid too, Miss Tony. And, and, oh, really, how old are you? I'm 14. Oh, okay. Well, I'm 30-something or four, whatever. And, wow, our kids are the same age. And, you know, it's – but there was that common thread um, that it, it was an, an opener for discussion. All right. So let's say you come home after that, after a full day. Uh, do you, sometimes you bring home some of those – tough situations and it weighs on your emotions and I you know I learned in that counseling program the the serenity prayer yeah. I can't control it so yeah. I I come home it's work it's home and you know when we first started having kids I mean I would I would not have a break because I would come home and, and you know Donna 
she'd go to work. She'd pass me the kids. She'd go to a Kings game, a Laker game, a Dodger game, or whatever. And, and now I've got the kids. So it's, it's feeding, it's homework, it's baths, it's this, it's that. So I really didn't, and I made it a point at the beginning of my career to not take it home with me, whether it was a good day or a bad day. You've done an incredible job, my man. Well, I got, I got great backup. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your nuclear family when you were growing up as a kid. Where did you grow up? Um, grew up in Sepulveda, which is now called North Hills, which uh -huh. is uh, down in the valley. It's a um, nice area. Yeah. Um, you know, mom and dad, mom still lives in the house that they bought in 1967. Wow. Um, but, it was, you know, I went, went to public school, and then my parents sent me to Crespi for high school. My brother and I went to Crespi. My sisters went to Catholic school as well. Um, normal childhood. Dad worked. Mom stayed home. Um, played so, sports, did all that stuff. Let me ask you about your father. How would you characterize him as a father? Was he tough? Was he easy? He, he was distant. Um, he traveled, traveled a lot. Mm -hmm. So my brother and I would do something stupid. We'd get grounded. He'd go away on a business trip. My mother would say, okay, you're fine. Go play. <laughs> um, but he was very Eastern European, Slovakian. And no emotion. Men don't hug. Men don't kiss each other on the cheek. Men don't say I love you. My mother, Italian. They kiss everybody because it's I think it's it's genetic. So for me, it was kind of weird growing up seeing that. And and I had a lot of arguments with my father. Um I, I told him that I, I hated him. Um, and that I never wanted to be like him. And that, that all changed, ironically, when I met my wife, whose father passed away before I met him or met her. Um, and she said, why are you like that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. So we, we reconciled, which was a good thing. And even with my own sons and daughters, I, I don't care. I'm going to tell you I love you. I'm going to give you a hug. And... The boys are like that. They're, 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 they're fine with it. Hey, I love you. I love you too, Dad. Great. You know, and that's the way that I, I learned from my dad what not to do, you know, because he was born in 1930, the end of the Depression. You know, men worked. Women stayed home. Men, men called the shots. You know, it was the leave it to beaver thing. Mom stayed home did all of these things. And it all changed for us when I think in 1979, my dad had a heart attack. Then in about 84, he had a stroke. He lost his job. So my mom went back to work. She went and she became a teacher. And it was, you know, from her doing that, that, you know, we were able to pay the bills because dad stayed at home. And he was, the stroke really depressed him. And we tried everything. Come on, Dad, let's go play golf. Come on, Dad, let's go do this. Let's go do that. He never wanted to. Um, so he, re he really wouldn't share what's really going on, any feelings, any no. emotions. No. And from that, you learn what not to do. And so then how are you, how would you characterize yourself when it comes to masculinity as a parent? 
with with your boys do you talk to them about what's going on with them or you uh do you let them know that it's okay for them to express their feelings or emotions or you know if you think there's something going on negatively you know do you feel open enough do they feel open enough to talk about it to you yeah they do and and i think that's you know because of the partnership that that donna and i have that you know and granted there's stuff that boys need to talk to dad about and stuff that girls need to talk to mom about because right. girls are uncomfortable talking to fathers about certain things and, and I, I i get that but you know um I, it's i have no problem with the boys you know doing that but if you want to talk come to me i'm not going to go to you and and try and pry it out of you and, and beg you to sit and talk to me and spill your emotions if something's bothering you you know where to go and and we've got you know whether it's me or donna it doesn't matter they know that they can come to either one of us and they're both great kids they're loving they're caring they're compassionate um i i couldn't be happier with you know all, all four of the the kids that we've raised because they're all like that that's great that's great um that's something that i touch on in my book because you know if these feelings and emotions you know if they can't be expressed then they they hold it inside it yeah. turns into depression or anxiety or some kind of mental health issue and that's when the risky behavior comes out with the drugs or alcohol or running around late at night with girls whatever it is so that's great i mean ha, have your boys done any done any, done any of that or if, is it pretty well taken care of because not, of communication not that i know of <laughs> um, well that's an honest answer they were um, i'll start with kendall she was afraid of it in high school so she never you know i'm not going to do it no 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 um brendan maybe a little bit but not really brianna never um derek is now a sophomore in college and you know he talks about the drinking games they play but we were always up front with him hey if you're gonna do it call because guess what we did it let's yeah. let's let's be smart about this let's not be stupid but when brendan was in high school he said i'm, I'm an athlete i'm not putting that into my body great you know now he's 24 he comes home and he's like dad let's have a drink together oh, when did you get that old? Aren't you nine still? Um, but it's, you know, I think if you're, if you're open and honest with kids, and, and I told them about some of my soirees with, with alcohol and the stupidity um, that, that I partook in, and I said, you know, let's, let's learn from it, learn from the stupidity, the dumb things that I did, and I'm not going to get mad at you if you have a drink. I'm going to get mad at you if something bad happens from you being really stupid. And we've, to my knowledge, you know, they're all, they're all not, they don't do it. Unless we have, you know, wine with dinner. Okay, who wants a glass of wine? I do. Okay, here, let's, let's have a glass of wine. Okay, so that, that sounds really healthy. Yeah. yeah, it's, and it's fun because it's always been, but I'm Italian. Remember Italians, 
you start drinking red wine at birth. Um, <laughs> and, and I always, and, and Donna's the same way, you know, but we always told our kids, I mean, I think we're the only family where we live with the, the driver's license law that said, you're not driving any of your friends until you've had a license for a year. And, and we were really strict with that. And we were on the same page about just about everything as far as disciplining the kids, um, whatever it was, we were always on the same page. Would, uh, if you had a chance to do anything over, uh, would you change anything as a parent? Oh, yeah. Some of the times I yelled or screamed at them. Um, some of the times I yelled and screamed at a sporting event. Um, because I look at, I, I look at those parents now and I, I call them whack jobs. <laughs> maybe that was me. Um, I, yes, but I can't really pinpoint anything because when you look at your children now and you think, oh, wow, maybe we should have done this, or maybe we should have done that, or maybe I should have let them play this sport or join this club or whatever. Um, I can honestly say that, uh, that we are, we are so, I am so blessed with, with the wife that I have with, and with the four kids that I have, um, what they've turned out to be. And maybe I would change my career to make a little bit more money, but you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy the broadcasting that I do. Um, I, I, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have held on to my minivan for so long. Okay, so let me ask you, what, through your experience, how would you describe healthy masculinity? I, I think it's a balance. I think you've got to, I, I honestly think that men do have a role in society and, and women have a role. And I don't mean that by men go out and work, women stay home and cook and clean. We're, we are wired differently. Boys want to play with guns and trucks and blow things up and girls want to do other things. But that doesn't mean there can't be any crossover. Both my daughters were phenomenal athletes. Um, well, your wife was a phenomenal athlete. Yeah, she was a lot better than me. I didn't want you to bring that up, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think masculinity, I, I don't know if there's a, a definition for it. I think it's just, it's more just be yourself and, and understand what you are and who you are and like in a marriage, where do you fit? Sometimes I'm the disciplinarian. Sometimes Donna's the disciplinarian. Sometimes she's the shoulder to cry on. Sometimes I am. Hey, Dad, Mom said this. She doesn't. Dad, Mom, Dad said this. I, the the whole stereotypical, be a man. I, I think we've also got to look at at culture as well. That that different cultures look at it differently. Where in some cultures the, um. The man is the dominator, and, and the woman is very subservient. And, and I can't do anything to change that culture. All I can do is, you know, explain to, to kids at, at, at school, yeah, I, I do the dishes. I, I sweep the floor. I, I do this. I do this. When I was single, I had to do my own laundry. I didn't bring it home for my mother to do. And they would say, well, those, that's women's work. No, it's not. It's work that needs to be done. Um, I think that that term is just, it's one of those things that I, I kind of wish would go away. Just let people be who they are. Well, you know, again, I, I drilled down on this in my book. Unfortunately, 
you know, men today, it's about, you know, I can out drink you and yeah. I got more money than you and I got a slicker car and I got more women than you. And they do that and they really are masking any feelings or emotions that they have. And they, they perceive if they do share those emotions with anybody that they have an issue that they're going to be perceived, you know, as not manly. And that's when shit happens, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And I think if we look at, at who the kids role models are, you know, the, 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 the rap stars with the, with the, the vulgar, awful music that, that throw the money around, you know, the, the athletes with everything. And, and Charles Barkley said it perfect years ago. I'm, I'm not a role model. I'm a basketball player. But society tells these kids that money, power, and fame are important. And what do they go after? They go after money, power, and fame. And if they don't get it, then they feel less of a person, I think. Um, what we need to start teaching kids, I think, is it who are you? How do you become the best you? And you know what? I, Tim, I know guys from high school that are multi-hundred millionaires. I'm a multi-hundredaire, <laughs> but, but I'm happy. You know, we, we've got a nice life. We've provided for our kids. Three of them, you know, we're celebrating Brianna's graduation from college this week, uh, next weekend, and she's starting a master's program. Kendall's got a master's. She's, she's been teaching elementary school. You know, Brendan's going for his master's and wants to do some social media and some sports information work. And, and Derek's at the Cronkite School at, at Arizona State. And, you know, and I, we don't make millions of dollars. You know, so that to me, that that would it be nice to have a lot more money? Well, yeah, but I I do with what I have. Yeah. So listen, you you've had an amazing life. How, how do you top all this? Um, grandkids. <laughs> I I I don't know. I just I I keep going, you know, day by day, and I I, I thank my lucky stars and. And I count my blessings that the path of me and my wife crossed. Um, and I, I don't know. I'm, I'm waiting. I, I think I can retire within five, six, seven years. And I want to travel. You know, every man's dream is to go to every baseball stadium in the country. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough where my wife says, when do we leave? <laughs> So, you know, that's, you know, I, I would love to do stuff like that. I, you know, but yeah, you know, being a grandparent down the road, that's, that's going to be fun because I can give the kid back and go here. No, he's yours or she's yours. Well, that's great. Uh, I just, you know, your story is quite awesome. And you're a self-made man of courage and bravery and giving to your community and a true role model for our world today. Uh, we're honored to have you on the podcast today, and I just want to see if there's any final thing you want to share with us. Oh, well, I mean, you and I, were, we've talked, and I'm, I'm glad we've reconnected because you were the person, the first person I met on, on mine and Donna's first date. <laughs> we went to a Kings-Blackhawks preseason hockey game, and then we went into the Forum Club. And you were in there with your big Laker championship ring. And I said, I said to Donna, she ordered a rum and pineapple, I remember. 
And I said, who's that guy? They said, oh, that's Tim Kress. He's one of the, you know, big wigs at Prime Ticket. Wow, that ring he's got. And, and you know, all the people that I've met throughout the years, is, it's just been it, it's just been phenomenal. And I'm, I'm glad that you and I reconnected. Um, I can't wait till that book's done. I want to I want to read it. Um, you know, I want to have you come and talk to my health classes when when school hopefully resumes soon in the fall. Yeah, um, I, I think it's it would be a great a great resource to have somebody come in and wear that ring to ooh and ah the kids. <laughs> okay. Well, Tony, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward, so I can learn from you, uh, so I can help others just like you have. So thanks again. It's my pleasure, Tim. Listeners, please look out for the Time Out for Mental Health podcast where you get your podcasts and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Thanks again, Tony. All right, Tim. Be well. We'll talk soon.